You're listening to Seattle Real Estate Podcast. So after an astounding rise in home prices, this expert from American Express, kind of a housing guy for American Express, he is predicting the boom will continue. For how long? And how much appreciation will housing have over the next couple, three years? He actually makes predictions on that. So you'll want to stick with me to the bitter end here. Why are we covering this in the Seattle Real Estate Podcast? Well, because it's actually real estate. So welcome back. This is my first uh, podcast since July the 4th. Took the 4th off as we do. And the 5th, because that was the holiday. Had a fun time. It was warm here in Seattle. Shocking, because July the 4th is usually pretty crappy and rainy, because July 5th is when our good weather normally starts to happen. But this year, we had a heat wave. It was epic. Um, so we're still riding that. But yeah, we're talking about housing and appreciation because this is a real estate podcast. That's what we're doing. All right. If you're new here, my name is Sean Reynolds. I own a couple of real estate companies. But more importantly, I read the news and you'll find me here on YouTube. Find me on the po audio portion of the podcast here and there. Let's do this. Let's get into it. Below is an interview of Edward Pinto, the director of American Express Eyes, whatever that means, housing center with Fortune's Sean Tully. So it's a Fortune article uh, on the state of rapidly rising home prices across the country. And there's a bunch of different things in here that there's a handful of things I don't agree with. But I respect somebody else's opinion on when they come right out and say, I think the market guy might go this percentage. Or, I think the market might go this percentage. Anybody who has the guts to, to do that. I respect that. So that's why we're kind of reading that. In almost five decades as one of the America's top housing experts, including a stint as chief credit officer of Fannie Mae, Ed Pinto has never seen prices climb at anything like the pace he's seeing from May. Yeah, uh, we've been through an incredible run. Everybody knows that drill. The appreciation is way too much. It is not sustainable. It'll slow down, has to, because prices can't keep going up without people getting to that point where they can't, where, where nobody can afford a house, right? The high end is up 25% over May of last year. So year over year between May and May 2021 and 2020, 25%. That is, that is wildly unsustainable. And the overall increase is 15% across all markets, 15% just insane, uh, says Pino, a director of the American Enterprise Institute's housing center. So the I was for Institute, forgot that part. What's driving those incredible increases in, is an arbitrage opportunity. Okay, yeah. The work from home economy has unleashed people who before the pandemic were tied to jobs in expensive coastal metros and empowered them to move to cities where they can get a lot more house for the same or in most cases, less money. So as the owner of a real estate brokerage, when I read that, I'm like, okay, we had some of that. But we just had, we have low interest rates and we have a ton of people that want to take advantage of that. That is more of what I'm seeing. And those markets where the, all these tech jobs are were already hot before this economy got even, uh, the housing economy got even hotter. So I don't think it's as much as people moving from the city to further out because a lot of these tech workers, when you start looking at the logistics of your internet for what you're doing in further out locations, it's not always necessarily good. And I haven't seen a ton of data saying, all right, everybody moved out of downtown. They're in the burbs now. There's some of that. And that's, a, that's the important narrative. That's what we like to talk about because that makes sense. But the hard numbers, 
I don't think they really, I don't think they really support that. But I get where he's going. He notes that even though the trend is inflating values in places like Phoenix, Raleigh and Pittsburgh, those locales remain such a great bargain for the refugees from Boston or San Jose. Very true. If you're looking at real affordability, you're going to leave a Seattle market and go to one of these places like a Phoenix or a Raleigh, North Carolina or a Pittsburgh. Um, although Pittsburgh, I don't know a ton about Pittsburgh, but it's making a comeback, let's say that. So he believes nationwide prices have plenty of room to keep surging at comparable rates in the coming months before moderating to an annual increase of 10% in 2022. 10%. That's still double digits. Anytime you hit double digits, that's still really strong. Normally, when you hit double digits, you're like, oh my gosh, we did 10%. Those are huge, huge numbers. Okay. And so now we're talking about coming off of 25% down to 10, 15% drop. And we're like, ah, oh, things are really slowing down. Oh, can you believe this market? It's slow. It's only 10% appreciation. If you, if you haven't followed the real estate market, if you have 10% for very long, things tend to go tilt after a while. Pinto collects his May home price appreciation for figures from closed sales. He then uses these, this data to calculate HPA's uh, home price appreciation by tracking changes in prices for the same homes from one period to the next. He divides the market into four price tiers, low, low, medium, medium, and high, kind of like how would you like your steak cooked, right? Each is based on the average sales price in a metro for all homes reported in the public records. Low encompasses all housing selling at 40% or less of the average sales price of houses with FHA mortgages in the metro area, of which Seattle would have approximately none. <laughs> and, that's, and that's true of a lot of big metropolitan markets. We just don't have that much in the way of affordable housing. Low medium qualifies at 40, per, 40 or 80% of the FHA metro area sales price. Man, in, in Seattle, we don't even have that many homes that have FHA lending. It's, it's hard to get an offer accepted with an FHA um, uh, financing addendum. People are just like, FHA, mm, government involved? Mm, no, not so much. We'll take that cash offer over there. Thank you very much. So, uh, and medium high goes from 80% to 125% of the Fannie Mae and Freddie Max maximum loan limit for the, we're just divided up, right? And we're just talking about where things are. High compromise, high, the high segment compromises sales that exceed the 125% mark. Pretty much everything in Seattle. Uh, for example, in Phoenix, the Fannie Mae or Freddie loan maximum is 548,000. I think it's seven something here in Seattle. So the high tier starts at 125% of that 548. That's just measures of where we're at. The May increases for all four price tiers are the highest monthly figures ever recorded in the Amer American Express institutions nine years of data. Now, granted, that only goes back to, um, you know, uh, 2012, right? So right in the heart of when things were just fractured from the Great Recession, housing-wise, it was just a debacle. But for Pinto, the most astounding numbers are the 25% increases in both the high and the medium data, not just because they're off the charts, but because they're so unusual versus the other categories. During boom markets, it's usually the low end 
that usually outperforms by far, says Pinto. But the extraordinary performance of expensive homes speaks to the migration of high earners who can now take those earnings and winnings from selling an expensive home in the city where housing is incredibly expensive and move to places where housing is much cheaper, he says. From May, low and low medium, the two bottom tiers, respectively gained 14% and 15% year-over-year gains. And it's us- that is usually flipped. Usually the low and the medium are off to the mar- you know off to the races just going hard and luxury which is the higher tiers and the next one down are like 14 15%. That's usually what you read across the board uh, 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 as far as stats go. You don't have luxury on the upper end leading, you know, paving the way at 25%. That's just not that's not how how it's done in housing, but it's what we're doing now. And so for some of that, yeah, you've got, I think you've got a lot of boomers who are selling and are moving to somewhere cheaper, because that makes more sense. Their dollars go a lot further. Um, And you have had a lot of people selling high end homes, because they're like, I can cash out and make how much now? It's just if you're in a position where you're going to sell, you're silly not to. I think we've got a couple more years of run here in Seattle. A lot of what we look at is 2025 is the year we're looking at is where the market starts to maybe kind of stabilize a little bit because, um, and by Seattle, I mean Bellevue because that's where I'm at. And what's happening is Amazon is dumping like 25,000 workers on us in a fairly small area here in Bellevue. And by dumping, I mean taking from Seattle to Bellevue, because Seattle sucks as far as running a big business goes. They want to tax Amazon and a bunch of other ridiculous stuff to pay for all kinds of programs that we all know are like, "Mm, yeah, I don't know. Maybe not. Um, But just, you know, to tax a high end corporation, and then, you know, try and spread the wealth around. Companies have the ability to say, yeah, we're going to move them like 11 miles that way in into a business environment where we're actually appreciated. When all those workers come this way to Bellevue, that's going to happen over the next few years. Those are the kind of trends that I look at is migration of employees, because that's a real hard trend. In other areas, it's, you know, what are interest rates going to be at? What are the employment scenarios in those markets? So there's a lot of dynamics that are happening here that are kind of below the scenes of what we're talking about. But for the most part, going into the pandemic, we just had super low inventory, we had low interest rates that got even lower, because the Fed has just been buying up every imaginable, you know, security they can to keep those interest rates down. At some point in time, we got to face a little inflation here. That's just that's just a common, right? But Pinto can also project what uh, the home price appreciations on closed loans will look like in July and August by analyzing rate lock numbers collected from originators covering about one half the market. So did you lock my rate today? Have you heard that term? That's when your mortgage guy's like, I locked you in. I locked you in. So here's the rate. We got to get this bad boy closed. And by bad boy, I mean loan, whether that's for a purchase or a refinance. So kind of knowing what the rate lock numbers are, he's projecting that into appreciation. And based on last year's rate locks, he is penciling in a year over year increase of 17% to 18% nationally, two to three percentage point above May's record above, above. So we're talking May year over year, 
at uh, 15%, 14%, 15%. And now we're 17 to 18% nationally um, for July and August month we're in now and next month. So those prices are drawn from signed contracts of sales that are reported when the buyer secures a home loan. The houses actually change hands around 45 days after because you do a rate lock on the front end, right? You're not quite through with the process. You got a bunch left to go. You might have some contingencies. You want to lock that rate in now so that when you go to close, you get that rate. That's bottom line, right? So there isn't, you don't have this, this uh, floating rate, you know, out there and it goes up and then your um, interest rate goes up and you end up paying more. Whereas if you lock it today, pay a little money, lock it today, you're good to go. When you close that loan, you get that rate. So the houses actually change hands 45 days later after Pinto amasses the rate lock data. So his numbers are the best advanced look available into where the market is heading up is what we're saying is up for the next couple of months. Not shocking. But at this, this market has got to slow. It's got to I've been saying it's slowing. Um, and I think in some markets, it is some specific markets, it is some of this stuff. Um, it's still just going crazy. And I'm reading stories about Oh, my gosh, that many offers. And that's, that's kind of the story a lot of people are talking about is how many offers, there's 100 offers on this property get tired of that because it's like, all right, that's not healthy. That's not good. It's not good for the buyers, great for the sellers, but you need a more balanced, you need a more balanced market. Pinnell points out that the US is the tail of two markets. In his words, it's the East and the West Coast, and then everywhere else. And that's a lot of what this feels like. Because I'm based on the West Coast here, you know, upper left USA, traditionally, Seattle is left out of everything. People don't even really know where it is other than the annoying Seahawks in their 12th manor here. Um, but Seattle's had a lot of stuff that's put us on the map, namely Chop and Chaz last year. That was fantastic for our PR team, wasn't it? Come to Seattle. We've got a lawless zone here. 25% of Americans live in high-priced coastal metros such as Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, and Boston. Those are a lot of markets we talk about. We talk about um, the San Francisco market here a lot on the Seattle Real Estate Podcast because San Francisco is kind of a larger version of Seattle in a lot of ways. It's got some of the same weather. It's, got, it's locked in between mountains and uh, the ocean. And it's geographically, it's it's fairly similar. Got a, a lot of the same characteristics. And what happens in San Fran usually happens in Seattle a bunch of years later. All right. Um, in those metro areas, the Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, and Boston, home prices average almost seven times area median incomes. So whatever your median income is, multiply that by seven. And there you go. Seven, the multiplier of seven is enormous. Most markets is like three, three and a half, somewhere in there, but seven times. But 75% of the US population resides in the everywhere else geographies, and maybe you're in that location, mostly interior metros in the sun and the rust belts, the flyover zones, right? In this rust, well, sun and rust belts, um, I don't know how that fits into the flyover zone, but you get what I mean. In this rest of the country, home prices are 3.5 times median incomes. So housing is half as pricey as on the coasts. And yet everybody wants to live on the coasts. Not everybody, but a lot of people do, right? Where are you moving? I'm moving from New York to Seattle. Oh, that's pretty far. Um, that opens a high pressure dynamic that's pushing people to move to where housing is more plentiful and a lot cheaper. 
And that's in, you know, a lot of it's in the Southwest, it's in the Midwest. There's a lot of markets where it's just way cheaper. And the, and the reason it's way cheaper is because you've got the land to build it out. We don't have the land to build it out here in Seattle. We just don't. Development is incredibly expensive, land development. Putting houses up, it's just, it's gone at a very slow rate because what it takes to get a development through platting process is years and years and a lot of risk. And there are not everybody's willing to do that. And so you've just got a bunch of big corporations that are cutting up our land, selling it and, you know, builders are building. So for Pinto, the pandemic marked a tectonic shift. For decades, the market was distorted by the not in my backyard or NIMBY movement that started in California in the 1950s and then spread to the other coastal cities. The not in my backyard movement shift imposed tight zoning laws. And we're going to be talking a lot about zoning laws here in the Seattle Real Estate Podcast, because we're getting into some tricky stuff. The whole, well, let's just get rid of the single family zoning term, just the term. Somebody pointed out to me, and it's true. It's not just the, the, the term that is being changed. I think you're going to have a lot of single family, the, the, the actual zoning. Yeah, maybe a little up zone here, a little up zone there. There's going to be a lot of proposed changes. We'll have to just kind of see what's going on. But there's some big shifts with zoning going on. And I'm kind of working my th way through analyzing that and seeing how I kind of want to cover some of that stuff. And then high costs that severely restricted new building, forcing families in LA or Seattle to pay ever higher prices for a relatively small aging pool of homes. Yeah, that is true. At the same time, metros such as Raleigh, North Carolina, Phoenix, Atlanta, and Dallas welcomed a wealth of new subdivisions that made their homes great buys in comparison. They've got the land to do it in those markets. We don't have the ability to do that. LA doesn't have the ability to do that. When you talk about a lot of development, a lot of times you're tearing down an old house and putting up four new ones. And so that's where a lot of your affordable housing is gone. That affordable old crappy house. Well, it's sitting on, you know, L1, L2, L3 zoning. Those are our zoning classifications here in Seattle. And now you put up a fourplex, you put up a eightplex, you put up a tenplex, depending on the size of the lot. Blow and go, right? You just keep going. But until the virus transformed America's lifestyle, it was still difficult to capitalize on the huge differences in price between the same sized house on a similar lot in San Jose versus Phoenix. If your office was in San Jose, you had to work in San Jose, Pinto says Pinto. But the new work from home economy free freed, say, a software engineer to sell in San Jose, keep the West Coast paycheck, buy a much roomier home, and still bank cash. Phoenix is literally changing into a satellite office suburb for San Jose, says Pinto. He cites an example gleaned from data on the two markets. A marketing executive or consultant in San Jose who sells their home for a million dollars can a buy an abode in Phoenix for half the price that's 28% larger and set on a lot that's more than one third bigger. Not arguing any of that. That is true. So I am not debating any of that. What I am seeing is that more and more companies are like, yeah, if you want the New York salary, you need to be in New York. You can't be in San Jose. San Jose. Do you know the way to San Jose? That was an excellent uh, song that Frankie Goes to Hollywood covered back in the day. Um, but we're, we're not here to talk about that, are we? We're talking about San Jose as um, a place you can sell and go to Phoenix. 
But more and more companies are saying, yeah, we need you in your home city. You know, that whole thing where we talked about you working remotely and kind of doing your own gig from wherever? Not so much. We need you back in the office. That's what I'm seeing more and more of. And so it's kind of a matter of which one do you believe? I do not believe that this work from home economy is going to keep going that long. I think this was, and I saw, what was it? Was it Jamie Dimon from like Chase or somebody who basically said, yeah, I'm just going to crush your dreams right now. We can, we're going to have you come back into the office because that was an anomaly in this whole COVID thing. We're not following this COVID protocol forever like a lot of the other big tech companies who maybe they can do that, but we're a finance company. Need your rear end back in the office. I'm seeing more and more of that. So does this narrative make sense? I don't know to some extent, but I don't think it's as much as um, as as people and the storylines that you're seeing. I think you've seen a lot of storylines. And I think there's other stuff going on. And that's kind of really what here's the trend. Here's the major trend. And it's because Phoenix is a super hot market because it's just affordable. I don't think it's because you got a million people working from home there. I think people are just moving there. And there's jobs there and all that other good stuff, right? So it's no surprise that the southern tier running from Florida to California's Inland Empire garnered the largest increases. Year over year, Salt Lake City gained 17%, Riverside, San Bernardino, 18%, Sarasota, Florida, 19%, while Raleigh and Austin waxed 21% and 22%. All of those cities have stuff going for them. Phoenix has stuff going for it as well. But affordability and new housing, you get a great house there for your bang for your buck. Now, you won't necessarily want to be there in August, but that's a whole nother story. If you can get through the weather there, it's kind of like the reverse effect of Seattle. We're having some epic weather here right now, which is like Seattleites. We're looking around going, was that really our weather in June? That was incredible. I, I mean, I am willing to say, all right, if that's the only weather we get this year, I'd be okay with that. If July, August, and September are a total wash, you can't be greedy, right? Because the weather gods may not give you back another summer. But I think I, I think we're going to have some good weather. But if you can get through nine months of crappy weather in Seattle, you get to this beautiful summer. If you can get through, you know, a couple of really horrendous months in Phoenix you know, you've got a pretty warm climate if that's your thing. So another beneficiary, industrial cities that have seen little population growth re in recent decades, leaving homes extremely affordable. But then they've got a job market that is mm, questionable, or maybe a little wonky or just doesn't have the tech influence. Because they've been, you know, an industrial type city in the past, a lot of that is changing, infrastructure is changing, a lot of these markets are changing. Now those metros are flourishing too. We're talking about the industrial cities. In May, Minneapolis registered year over year increase of 12%. That's pretty good considering what happened in Minneapolis. That's pretty good. But you could say the same thing about Seattle. In 2020, Seattle was the fastest growing city in the United States. We also had chop and chess, right? So Minneapolis, I mean, we know what happened there. You still got a year over year change of 12% on average, while Pittsburgh and Columbus jumped 15% and 16% respectively. 15% for Pittsburgh, you go Pittsburgh. I always like the underdog in a city that's had a tough go. That's the city I pull for. 
because I kind of, Seattle has always been an underdog. It just has. It's like, where is Seattle again? Ah, we don't care. Their sports suck. <laughs> you know, and that's, that has been, um, mainly the Seahawks. They used to really suck. And then they got good new coach and all that. And everybody jumped on the bandwagon. That's when I jumped off. You might think that single family housing in the super pricey East and West Coast is taking a hit from the exodus, but that's not happening. The reason that cities like LA, San Francisco, and Seattle have big reservoirs or, or renters who now want to house. So we're not going backwards, anything but. In other words, it's not just about going from expensive to bargain cities. An equally strong trend is the flow from downtown rentals to roomy homes far out of town. That's another story. <sighs> yeah, that's out there. But I mean, I'm on the front lines of where are you moving from? Where are you moving to? And a lot of the people coming into Seattle market, they're from California and they're here for jobs. Just as simple as that. Wherever they can find a job that's not a ridiculous commute. Um, and so roomy homes far out of town where a couple can work from home offices and play badminton in the backyard. Doesn't that just sound swell? I don't know anybody that plays badminton. Nobody. Does anybody have a badminton set? Do you guys play badminton? That just, that, that just seems like, a, I don't know, some kind of stereotype there. California, I'm not trying to knock badminton. Believe me, I'm inclusionary as far as badminton goes. I'm okay with badminton. I think it's a fine sport, but just the visual of play badminton. What about having a fire pit and having friends over and cooking s'mores? What about that? A little marshmallow and chocolate action? That I can get behind more than badminton. But you do you, I'll do me, right? California has the lowest home ownership rate in the nation. That is always an interesting one, says Pinto. But now people are moving from apartments where they're paying five grand a month across from office towers where they work and buying homes 30 miles outside of town. All right. And we've had the whole exodus from the cities thing. Well, San Francisco, yes, we have. Other downtowns, eh, you've had a little bit of hold off. But I think you're going to see that come right back around. You're going to see that boomerang return. And that's why I've been saying your studio and your one bedroom in downtown, those are going to be back. Those are going to be hot little commodities here because everybody's going to go, oh, I can get that studio in downtown and everything's back opened. Hmm. All right. I, don't, I mean, I don't really want something that small, but if, if that's what I can afford and that's what I can get a foothold in, maybe I live in that for a couple of years, build up a little equity, and then I buy that one or two bedroom a little bit further out and I go from there. That is the next move I think you're going to see a bunch of. How long can these outsized increases go on? In most boom markets, Pinto in the past has correctly predicted that high prices will trigger lots of building, slowing the, ri the rate of price appreciation. All right. But we have been had we have been had an undersupply of new construction for what twelve years now since the Great Recession. In other words, the solution to high prices is high prices, at least in the Sun Belt cities where new construction is plentiful. And by that, he what they're talking about is you move that price up, and as more prices move up, you will attract more builders because more profit attracts more players into the marketplace until there isn't more profit. And then the equilibrium starts to bring those prices down and the number of builders in that market. But we just don't have enough new construction homes in the United States on the market to make this happen. This makes sense. And there's not enough in the pipeline either. Don't count on new construction. If you're like, ah, oh, yeah, we're going to have more homes in the market. You're not. It's that's not a thing right now. Pinto says that these double digit increases can't continue. Agreed. 
and we're talking house prices because they'd make housing unaffordable for most Americans, even if low interest rates persist. Doesn't matter how low the rates are, if you're buying something, you don't have the down payment for it, and you can't afford the payments after it's a no go, right? But we're in a position now where interest rates are so low, and people have enough money coming out of the equity of the homes they're selling that they're like, all right, let's go. And we've been doing it for a while. But he does believe that we could see appreciation of okay, so here's where we get into the predictions for appreciation. And this is what this is why I'm doing this podcast, because this is the stuff that I'm like, all right, let's talk about that. But he does believe that we could see appreciation of 10% for all of 2021. All right. We are in July 2021. I'm recording this to you on July the 6th. I can never remember what day it is anymore. I just know roughly what week I'm in, right? So 10% for all of 2021. Yeah, I think that's a no brainer. I think that's not a hard call. That is probably a little bit on the light end is what I would agree. But this guy, I mean, he, he crunches these, he's at his desk, just banging away on his stats where I just, you know, cherry pick. All right, 10%, maybe I throw out 12. I don't know. I'm not really basing that on anything other than just 30 years in the real estate market. I don't know. Easing to a still healthy 5 to 6% in 2022. That is a major downshift. I'm going to go 8 to 9%. I'm going to go 8 to 9% there. Still, so easing to a still healthy 5 to 6% in 2022 and 2023. All right. So if you're going to average it over 2022 and 2023, that's pretty far out as far as making a prediction, five to 6%. If we could get five to 6% after this run, you're doing pretty good because things usually kind of fall apart a little bit, right? And then we've got some downward, but if you if you're still squeezing out five to 6%, if you're getting 6% in 2023, and you've had 10% or 12% in 2021, and then 15% or more in 2020, that's some massive appreciation massive appreciation. If you don't follow housing stats, you're like, ah, whatever. <sighs> Good if I'm a seller, terrible if I'm a buyer. If you're a real estate agent, the 5 to 6% is a much more doable market. Um, and that's where I would want to see things somewhere less than where we are right now, right? And I'm, I'm supposed to be the cheerleader. This is the greatest market ever. Oh, let's just keep this going. It is a great market because there's, there's, you know, volume going, but that's not a great market for a real estate broker and appraiser is not necessarily a healthy market for across the board. And that's, you know, I'm in this for the long term. So I'm not like, all right, let's get in and let's bang out a couple of massive years and then go retire to my yacht on the south of France. Yeah, something like that. Um, it's because the gap in prices between the coastal markets and everywhere else market is so huge, he says, as the movement of people to high priced to bargain to high priced to bargain cities continues, prices in the bargain cities could keep appreciating fast and still remain affordable for the folks with high incomes coming from the coasts. All right, are we going to see that much migration change after this little whole COVID thing? Is that really going to happen? I think it goes to, I think you still see in migration to cities with, with all the jobs. That's a fundamental, can't really avoid that. This other, these other stereotypes of, you know, the expensive cities to the bargain price cities. Well, the bargain price cities have to have something going for them too, right? They just do. You can't just have something out there willy nilly and all right, let's, let's go there. It's got to make sense. Phoenix makes sense. Scottsdale makes sense. Um, 
And so you can see people doing that. However, I think a lot of this kind of mellows out and we don't have this crazy whirlwind of I'm moving across the country because I can work anywhere. I think that stuff kind of goes by the wayside and we go back to more fundamentals of where's your company relocating you? That's where you're going to end up. That's where you're going. It's possible that the most positive shock delivered by the pandemic is breaking not in my backyard's hold and unshackling Americans to go where the roomy kitchens, the three bedrooms, and the backyards with badmintons and or schmores that remain the American dream are still affordable. I think you've got some of that, but a lot of what has gotten this whole bad boy market going is tech money coming out of the big West Coast cities, East Coast cities, New York, that whole thing. It's tech money that's fueling a lot of this stock options, fueling a lot of this and companies moving their employees in. I mean, it's just it's such a a normal story. Hey, where are your buyers coming from? Because that's what I'll ask my broker, you got buyers, you got a buyer deal? Okay, where are your buyers coming from? Ah, they're coming from Cali. All right, where? Uh, San Francisco, LA, wherever, like, okay, that makes hey, we don't even question it. It's like, all right, are they coming for work related? Yeah, they're coming for a job. All right, where's their headquarters? Their headquarters in or whatever here in Seattle, they're going to commute from there. All right. That's what I hear the most out of. It's not people. It's not these other crazy stories. But those other crazy stories, they're more sexy than yeah, people are moving in for a job. That's just not I mean, we've, we've, we've read that story before. And it's not that exciting. But the whole badminton thing, you know, that's kind of one of those things. Oh, that is so nice. Like they're moving out of the city where they used to think it was really cool until they had kids. Now they want their kids. They want their toddler to be able to walk in the backyard and play badminton. Sure, there's some of that. But I don't think that's a large portion of what we're dealing with right now. It's straight up jobs. Where are the jobs? Where are the jobs going to? Where are companies relocating? Where are companies uh, making their inroads? Amazon here, downtown Seattle. Ah, yeah, Seattle. Mm, whew, not so much. I'm gonna move over to Bellevue. That's been an ongoing story. That's the kind of stuff that we're seeing. And those are the stories that I read. And I'm like, all right, so you're going to move 25,000 jobs from one you know, city, big city, to a suburb. How is that going to impact the suburb? Because I look and see how many active listings there are in Bellevue. And I'll give you a hint. It's basically sold out all the time. And when you have those dynamics, you're still going to have this appreciation that's just wacky. And that is based on where jobs are, not badminton, not schmores. But the badminton and schmores, it does have something. something. I, I mean, badminton and schmores. Whew. Maybe I'd take up badminton if somebody just make me schmores. I don't know. All right, so that's it for me. So appreciation is probably going to continue. At what rate is it going to be double digits? Probably for the rest of 2021. Into 2022, does it drop down to five to 6%? Huh. We'll just have to wait and see. You're just, gonna, you're just gonna have to tune into the Seattle Real Estate Podcast, right? Kind of see where we're at. But um, yeah, I don't think these numbers are out of line for what we're looking at. And that's some massive appreciation in housing. Down the road, who the heck knows? After 2023, man, I don't know. You got an election in 2024, anything could happen, right? All right, that's it for me on this one. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Seattle Real Estate Podcast. I will catch up with you soon. Until then, stay safe. We'll see you then. Bye. 
forget to subscribe to our channel and hit the notification bell so you'll know when our next video is out.